languages reflect the culture that produced them. But how much do our languages affect the way we think? How do languages change based on the context? Can we predictably modify language in order to change culture? And even if we could, does that mean that we should? Linguistic quirks that change our worldview this week. Philosophers. Philosophers. Okay, David. Once again, you have won the lottery, and you have been elected to choose the topic for this week. Come on down. Come on down. What's our topic? (laughs) So, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, something that's been on my mind in this past week. Uh, Linguistic relativity. As one normally thinks about. Uh, Yeah, yeah, as people do. (laughs) Um, Okay. This is, uh, this is a, a concept that I've thought about now and again over the past uh, few years. Um, another name for this phenomenon is the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, um, which is a fun misnomer because uh, Sapir and Whorf did not work on this topic together and they did not make a hypothesis about it. But anyway, that is another name you can find it under if you would like to do more research after this episode. And uh, to be specific, it's Sapir, S-A-P-I-R. Yes. And Worf, W-H-O-R-F, yes. not A-R-F, like the word. Yeah. I was like, if you can look that up, I'm like, for our poor people that aren't looking that, that, at anything. That do not have the ability to actually look at the show notes like we can. Exactly. <laughs> Which we should totally get back to publishing at some point. Just publish the show notes? Yeah, maybe we should. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but basically, this is the idea that the language you speak or use shapes your very worldview. It's pretty clear that languages are shaped by the culture that they formed in, but this hypothesis claims that the opposite may also be true, that the language you learn will determine... Well, okay, this is a strong form of the hypothesis, that... The language you learn determines the way that you think about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's called linguistic determinism, not linguistic relativity. But it's just a stronger case of linguistic relativity. So, and there's also the case that both of these things are true. And it's kind of a cyclical feedback loop type right. thing. Interesting. Right. Because like, it, it's, it's obvious how culture will shape a language. People will talk about the things that they care about. Right. Well, and not only that, but there there are all kinds of connections that we're not going into in this specific episode about ge- the things that you wouldn't normally think about that affect your daily life, all the way down to geography, which is like one of my favorite books. It's Blood, Germs, and Steel. Uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. That's what I said. Um, like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's my favorite book. Mispronounce this title. Okay, it's been a few. It's been a little bit since I've read it. By Jared Diamond, if you're curious. Yes, by Jared Diamond. And he his specific uh, area of focus is geography and how it affects uh, culture. And then culture affects... And language is a part of culture and yes. so on and so forth. So, but Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. So I, I don't think it's... Uh, intuitively, I would agree that yes, your, your culture affects your language. Or a lot of things about your language are determined by your culture, which is also informed by other things. Like we were mentioning before the episode how, and this was about written language, but the medium that you have for your written speech. Written speech. That's what it is. Um, 
if using speech to sure to, to mean written, written words yeah written words um well, they're not always words. That's why I, I, I used speech because okay, I don't know sure. if you consider hieroglyph words, but we're not here to split hairs. Not today. Well, okay, yet. <laughs> but yeah, so like if you had stone, uh, your lettering or hieroglyphs tended to be jagged because that's easier to chisel that. Whereas if you use something like paper and, you know, a quill or you painted using like some other type of uh, brush. you can use more curvy shapes. Yeah, more curvy shapes. Or yeah, the, the original thing that, that led into that topic was like trying to... Uh, hypothesize about the origins of cursive writing. Right. Um, that cursive doesn't make sense if you're writing on stone or clay, but it makes a lot of sense if you're writing with ink that drips everywhere when you pick up your pen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, languages, tend, uh, spoken languages are not in a special case. I don't. I wouldn't think. No. You know. uh, okay. So. I uh, I listed a few examples of things to uh, to talk about. I'll let you start because this is something that you've talked to me about several times before about uh, the Korean language, or That's... at least a Korean language. I don't know how many languages there are in e- Korea. Yeah, I am by no means a linguistic expert, period, or <laughs> on the Korean language. Um, but this comes to me from like a, a niche understanding of the world of esports in which there is a culture surrounding Korea that they them as a culture take esports more seriously mm-hmm. um and that's because they tend to do a lot better at them and one of the reasons it's believed that they do better specifically in team sports like league of legends or any other moba or multiplayer online battle arena style games mm-hmm. um where you need roughly in league it's five but anywhere from five a small group of people they need to be able to coordinate extremely efficiently in order to gain an edge over their opponent and one of the things that was examined is how the korean language is structured so that coordination is a lot easier um and i, I might end up butchering some of the details so you know don't don't take me to task on this feel free to look it up yourself i would encourage that um because it, i think it is also fascinating but like the way by which like a good example is in English when you're playing a team based game like that giving relic giving locations of an objective or an enemy opponent or relaying that information the way that's done most efficiently in English is to have a nickname or code name for every section of the map like as detailed as you can get that you can still memorize mm-hmm. um and so when you're trying to make a call out you have to give that name say, oh, they're in South River or Bot River. Bot being short for bottom. bottom. Yeah, you, you have to shorten you, these you things. You abbreviate these things either either because it's faster to say or because you are typing and time is very valuable if you're typing. Right. In this case, it's spoken, so it yeah. has to be typed. But it it's so time sensitive that you have to be able to communicate that message in like two seconds or less. So Bot River gank is, is just a short phrase that means there's someone coming into the bottom lane. And he's in the river, and he's going to be there soon, and he's going to come in on your team, and you better you might back up right. or be ready for that, yeah. you know. But that's mainly just relaying information. When it comes to what should we do about it, it's a lot more complicated because the combination of actions that can be taken by five people, you know, if you do the permutations on mm-hmm. that, get really complicated. Yeah. Whereas in Korean, a lot of it's modified. So when you talk about something you can I, I don't want to butcher this I don't want to get it wrong either but essentially from my understanding instead of me saying hey 
here is the objective location of something. Go get it. I can just say to you, he's to your left. And the way in an English that comes across kind of clunky because I have we're not used to thinking about things from another person's perspective in that way. Typically, when I'm speaking, anything I reference is you assume relative to me because I'm the one who's speaking it. Unless I specifically say otherwise. If you're, if you're in person anyway. If I'm in person. Um, it might be different if you're talking over the phone or something like that. Like if I say look left, I mean your left. Right. But for example, like the most one of the most common ways to get someone to... When you're using like a preposition or something like that. You, you know, it's either subject adjacent. It's either something to do with the subject or it's something to do with me. Or if I say over there, you don't know where there is. You have to look at me first to gain that information. You know, it it's all spread out, you know. But in Korean, it's always assumed that I'm speaking to you. So you, the listener, everything's relative to me. I don't ever have to think about who's speaking to me. It's always relative to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very useful when you're speaking through a microphone and have a headset on and you don't have a person standing there talking to you. Um, you just hear a voice say something and you immediately assume relative to you. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, it's, it's similar to the way in Spanish where you can modify words depending on the size of the group you're talking about, um, or, or in the, on the perspective, like I'm trying to think about like, um, <clears throat> I, I can't remember what they're called. It's been so long. Conjugations? Not conjugations. It, it might be conjugations, but it's like, um, if I wanted to say, yo, hablo, I speak, mm-hmm. that would be I, the word for speak, habla would change if I was talking about you. Right. That's conjugation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the way the conjugation yeah. works is Hablo, different. I speak. Hablas, you speak. You speak. Hablamos, we speak. Yeah. Hablan, they speak. Right. So you don't even need to say the yo, hablo, like I just did, because that's an English butchering of Spanish, I would assume. Uh, it's not invalid to do that, but most people don't because it's redundant. Exactly. Hablo implies I, so you don't have to say the word for I, yo. Exactly. But in English, I can't just say speak. Because you don't know what I... Is that a command? Is Well, yeah, in English, that's just a command. You're commanding me. Right, I have yeah. to use a different word with it to, to know for you to... Okay, what speak? Me speak, you speak, I speak, we all speak. You know, like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, it, it's similar in that way. It's just more efficient for quickly relaying commands to someone else in order to coordinate. And because of this, it's believed that the responsive nature of a lot of the, their gameplay, it's just better than what you would see in Western teams, specifically in the EU and the United States or North America. So that, that's just one example of how just speaking a different language, you can become a lot, you know, it can really help right. out. This is a tasks. case in which, yeah, th- this language is just advantageous for that activity. Um, which to take that back to what we had said before, culturally speaking, and this is, I think, true of a, major- a lot of Asian cultures or Eastern cultures, mm-hmm. You know, not to throw them all together, but <clears throat> there has always been a very interesting emphasis on the group and the common good. Um, if you look especially into some of the philosophies, it, you don't see a whole lot about you. Right. Um, you should do this. It's we should do this. You know, that, it's little nuances like that. But the emphasis has always been on the group. Um, whereas in the West, we tend to think a lot more individually. Mm-hmm. And there are ups and downs to that. The downside in this case being that it's really hard for five individuals to achieve a task. 
but it's easy for a team of five or a group of five to achieve a common goal like that. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example for the Korean. And again, look it up. <laughs> don't don't go off me. This is something that I read in an article. Yeah, about neither video of us games. are experts in the field of yeah. linguistics. Yeah, and I'm sure I butchered something in there. So I'm just letting you well, know. You, yeah, you. Anyway, we don't need to go into that. Um, okay, so the next example that I have on the list is something that I took a bit of an interest in recently, uh, a constructed language called Tokipona. Um, so for those unfamiliar, I won't talk too much about constructed languages, but a constructed language as opposed to a natural language is one that like a person or people sat down and made from scratch. Hmm. Um, they can, you can still take influences from other languages when doing this, but the point is like you built a language instead of it just emerging naturally. Right. Um, so Tokipona is an intentionally minimalist language. The original version, if you want to call it that, had 120 words in it total, which is very small for a language. Um, and I've noticed some interesting thing. I, I, I learned this language recently, um, all of the original 120 words. And some of the some of the ways that things are defined do kind of force you to they either force you to think about something in a certain way or they prevent you linguistically from differentiating them. For instance, uh, there's a word, wile, which means want, but it also means need. So there's no way to distinguish between what you want and what you need. Mm. Um, well, yeah. I guess there is, though, but not in the language. You know, just to think about it, you, you would have to... It's up to you to, like, if you need multiple things, it's up to you to list the things you would assume priority-wise first. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Or like well you you can you could emphasize it. You know, you could say, uh, wile mute mute, I really, really need this. Hmm. Um you know, so you you can you could emphasize it that way and make it more important than any ordinary thing. But linguistically it's the same thing. Right. It there purely literally it it mean it also means I really, really want this. So yeah, so that's one thing. Or, um, there's not a word for friend, but there's a word for person and there's a word for good. So you could say Yanpona, a good person. Uh, because why would you have a friend who's not a good person? Right. Um, and then one of the intent, I I think that was one of the things that was sort of intentional that was to draw, draw attention to certain like contradictions or at least the way that Sonia, the creator of the language saw it in English. What does it mean for someone to be a bad friend hmm. in Tokipona? This is a blatant contradiction, a bad, good person. Cool. What does that mean? Right. Um, so that was interesting. Well, and you know, I've just been sitting here thinking about you know the bad friend thing. It, I think the difference there, which is interesting, is you don't say friend person, for example, in English. A friend is a person. Like, there's assumed characteristics that are bound to the subject in Mm -hmm. this case. Whereas, that's not so much a thing, it seems like, at least from the one example given. You know, you don't have a special classification for a person. You just use the descriptive attributes of that person right to assume where they're relative to you or your opinion of them so in english you can have a bad friend it's a person that you've put socially in in a circle of friendship Mm -hmm. knowingly that they're a bad person 
and there's nuance to that, but it, it, I feel like it's also right excusable. to me. Like bad bad friend to me, it means like someone that you thought was a friend, but turned out not to be very friendly to you, right? Or that you want to be a friend, or you've retained as a friend, even if they are no longer acting in a way that you would prefer right, to they have like as a constantly friend. let you down on things right and so there's like an attachment to someone that you might form that might be negative especially when you place them in a social circle where they really don't belong right but for some reason you can't move them from that space mm-hmm. and english allows you a way to describe that situation and also excuse that in a way that allows them to stay there right just by calling them a friend you know it applies certain um it implies certain things about how you think about that person or how you would treat that person like you ideally would treat a friend better than you would a normal person but if they're a bad person do they deserve to be treated that way you know and why are they your friend right besides the fact that you have a word that you can label them and put them in that place mm-hmm. you know um and i feel like if i knew more about tokipona which i don't um I would feel like there is a good way that is even more revealing to explain that relationship. Like, I'm sure there's a way to talk about someone you've known for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how you would express that in Tokipona, but that's essentially what you would have to say about, you know, if, you know, they, but it differentiates between someone who is good and that's why they're your friend and someone you just know well, and that's why they're your friend. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so you can have, you can explain that, but even in explaining it, you can say they're a bad person, but I've known them for a long time. And that might more adequately explain your situation mm-hmm. with that person and not conflate things that are inherently contradictory, you know, at least in practice. Right. That is interesting. I wonder, so you said you've been looking over it over the last week and you've learned the vocabulary, right? Yeah. Um, I haven't fully memorized all of it. I haven't had that much time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've learned most of it. Okay. I wonder how long it would take to get used to using it quickly. Like, I'm sure you'd have to think about it for a moment. Like, you'd have to give it more thought than you would English. Well, yeah. So, the, the language is... Be, because there are so few words, you have to think about... Ba- basically, there's not a word for most things. So, you have to sort of talk in definitions but it's clunky to talk in very detailed definitions so you need to come up with very quick ways to describe things so like there's not a word for car Mm -hmm. but i might call it a tomotawa a going box (laughs) okay all right well i guess tomo is not box like a structure a going structure or Ilotawa, a going tool, something like that. Mm. Um, or, like, there's not a word for a telephone, so I might say ilotoki, a talking tool. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, it's it, it forces you to be creative with how you with how you talk about things, because you, yeah, there, there are very... Well, okay. It's more powerful than it might at first seem, because... The, the grammar allows you to use pretty much any word as either a noun, a verb, or an adjective. So that's helpful. Hmm. Um, so like toki can mean the verb to speak. It can also be a noun, a language. 
uh, or it can be an adjective as I demonstrated with Ilotoki. Mm, okay. Like for speaking, or I could say like Yan Toki, the speaking person. Gotcha. The person who's speaking. Yeah. So it's, it's not quite as limited as it may at first seem, but it's still quite limited and you have to, you have to get creative in how, in how you describe things. And it forces you to be very contextual. That was one of Sonia's goals when making it was to sort of force you to pay attention to the present moment. It's very difficult to speak in the abstract in Tokipona. Um, you, it, it relies heavily on, mm, being able to point at things uh either being in person or showing someone a picture of something and you know so the 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 words that are part of the language don't ever get very specific because if they were specific then they aren't useful for other things Mm -hmm. and i think there's like a boundary there where because proper nouns are allowed yes proper nouns are allowed um so it's, I think, assumed that anything that is important enough um, that may have a very specific definition, you would name it. You would give it a proper noun for the thing. Uh, right. So it kind of helps. Um, yeah. And obviously this, this language is absolutely useless for technical language. Sure. Because um, you would just end up having to give everything a technical name anyway. Right. Um, yeah. Which is kind of how it already is. You know, like when you... Like, for example, look at taxonomy, right? Right. Um, we we use a bunch of Latin words chained together in a series that's con- that's directed to, to I- specifically identify, like, a species of animal. Instead of having to list off, which is, okay, instead of having to list off all the things about it that make it that species, even though, interestingly enough, a lot of the Latin names given are that, right? They're, they hint at what we're talking about, you know? I can't pull one off the top of my head, but, like, because um, I don't have the taxonomy tree in front of me, but, you know, there might be a Latin name that talks about something that's winged or that flies and that's used as some type of classification or order for birds in mm-hmm. general or flying things right you know so so anyway that's tokipona um it's a uh, it's an interesting interesting thing and got me thinking about about this topic um that you that, that there's only some some things are just baked into the language where you there there's not a way to differentiate between some things uh or it forces you to think about the bare essentials of what defines a thing um because there are not specific words for things unless you give them proper names you know this series is an interesting sidebar uh, that we don't have to spend too much time on because it's not what we really set up to talk about today. But it, it got me thinking. So if me and another per like say I wander into the bush somewhere and uh, I come across another person who doesn't speak my language, right? Would it be easier if I knew something like Tokipona since it has such a limited vocabulary? Mm-hmm. 
would it be easier for me to teach that person enough Tokipona for us to be able to effectively communicate in the moment? Or would it be easier for me to try to learn their vocabulary or to share vocabulary from each of our languages? I think what ends up happening in a situation like that is, uh, yeah, you could try to teach them Tokipona if you already knew it. But suppose either you didn't know it or or you decided to attempt to learn their language. What's probably going to happen, they don't have enough time to teach you the intricacies of their language. No. But they can teach you nouns and some basic verbs. And so what what would emerge probably is like a a a pigeon of that language mm-hmm. um where yeah you're you're going to end up speaking something sort of like tokipona very limited vocabulary um so yeah it's it's a toss up as to as to what would be easier to actually do but you're going to end up with basically the same thing yeah hmm. interesting um i did remember the other thing i wanted to to mention oh, the other there we go the, uh the name of the language, Tokipona. Yeah. Um, so, as some some people may have put together based on the other examples that I've given, Tokipona literally means good language. Um, but it also it also means simple language, because it is a simple language. So good and simple are the same word. Hmm. So it also forces like a philosophy of minimalism on the speaker. That. Uh, that the word for good also means simple and the word for bad also means complex. Right. Anyway. Okay. So some literary examples we can get into. Uh, I, I thought of two books in which uh, language played an important part. Anthem by Ayn Rand, in which the the first person pronoun was erased from the language, I. Um and so the author and everyone has to speak in the uh, the first person plural, uh, we, the entire time, or mm-hmm. well, at least for most of the book. Um, and this was this was done as a way of like forcing the the people in this place to think collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can never you can never prioritize yourself because there's not even a word for that. Okay. Um, and 1984, in which the government comes up with Newspeak, which is just their own like butchered language of uh, of English, in which they would either they would either define like specific new terms that suited the state's agenda, or they would redefine existing words. So that they would be bad if they didn't want you to think about them. Hmm. Although the thing in Anthem about the removal of the singular personal pronoun I, I mean, it's kind of obvious to a lot of the things Rand wrote about had to do with her experience in Soviet and post-Soviet Russia, where she's from. So she was not a big fan of lay communism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one example from Newspeak is... Uh, a redefinition or sort of a stripped definition of the word free. So the word free exists in Newspeak, but it can only mean the absence of something. You can say the, the examples uh, given here are the dog is free from lice or the field is free from weeds. Hmm. Uh, but like the concept free will is not a valid use of that word in Newspeak. 
unless you say free of will. <laughs> um, and there's 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 also some some new words like crime think, double think, uh, and everyone's favorite ingsoc, English socialism, which is like the the name of the the state's ideology. Yeah. You know, quick sidebar again. Uh, this is also not something that we're talking about this week necessarily, but uh, you, since you started using things like uh, oh, doubles in your uh, double speak, yes, double speak, um, which is not a or, language. Uh, double think. Yeah, you said double think, but it made me think of double speech, right? Um, or to double speak, and that's an interesting concept as well. Um, that's a pretty advanced concept in any language but what's in, what i would be interested in thinking about at some point is how double speak works you know in different languages and if there are certain linguistic structures that would either promote or discourage double speak uh, and for those uh listening double speak is one of the is the concept where I can say something to you that literally means one thing, but the implied meaning is different. For example, and for me, the the go-to example is always, um, if you imagine like any kind of Joe Pesci film or any film that has to do with like the mob or whatever in the U.S., um, you know, a very thuggish gentleman walks into your small shop and says, you've got a really nice shop here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. And that literally means that the person does not wish harm upon your shop. But the way I said it and the way you heard it, it's a threat. Mm-hmm. And you know it's a threat. But it's one of those things. And the whole point of double speak was that I can say something to you to communicate what I want. But if it was ever written back or read back specifically like in a court where everything's completely innocuous, it's completely innocuous. But if you... Or at the very least, it introduces some doubt, right? Anything that relies, and, and doublespeak tends to rely a lot more on inflections and cadence as to how you speak. Um, but that's the main purpose, is so that I can say something to you now that you will know how it means because of how I said it. But later, I can say the exact same thing again if I were to be like caught or whatever, and it would sound totally innocuous because I can just on the fly change the inflection. Like, oh man, it'd be a shame if something happened to you. It's very different than it'd be a sure shame if something happened. They're very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's just that's another interesting little thing, I think. Sidebar. Yeah. Sidebar closed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so another place where this pops up is programming languages. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't want to assume that our uh, listeners know a whole lot about programming. Um, but an interesting thing about programming language is like, wh- why are there so many? Mm-hmm. And b- because at, th- at the end of the day, all programmers are trying to solve the same problems. Right. We want to give instructions to a machine to do a specific thing. Right. That's what we all want to do. And all programming languages, okay. All conventional programming languages, <laughs> um, and by conventional I mean designed to actually run on the hardware and not in some sort of virtual machine or interpreter or something like that, um, they all turn into the same thing: binary code that the computer understands natively. Yeah, to oversimplify, but not really ones and zeros, if you will. Right, specific ones and zeros that the hardware is designed to understand. Yes. Um, Ultimately, they're all going down to the same thing, but the reason why there are so many different languages is because 
different languages are more suitable for thinking about problems or for solving problems in certain ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can you can think of your your most basic type of uh, a programming language in which you just give instructions in order to the machine, right? And it carries them out. Um, one such example example uh, appropriately named Basic, the beginner's all-purpose symbolic construction code. For some reason, I remember what that stands for. Good for you. Um, <laughs> is basically this: you you give ha 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 basically, um, you give instructions to the machine in order. Um, a little bit more advanced than that is C. You're giving instructions pretty much in order but you can also more easily define like subroutines to to call and break your break your problem into pieces you can like here's the part here's the part of the here's the part of the program that's responsible for this thing and here's the part that's responsible for this thing and i can have them interact to do that um there are also one of the attempts to solve some of the emergent trouble dealing with languages like that are languages that are so-called object oriented mm-hmm. uh where people thought okay the the best the, the way that humans intuitively think about problems is breaking up breaking them up into the different components of the problem called objects mm-hmm. so you know if we're if we're trying to track inventory then i can have an object mm-hmm. for uh the inventory itself which contains items which are a different type of object um right and, yeah and clients and receipts and things like that we can we can break up the system into its different components that we think about conceptually right and more specifically it it also allows typically scoping which allows you to group objects by what makes them similar um and they can inherit inherit properties from each other that are the same like for example i could say a bin but what i mean when i say like using your inventory example what i mean by bin though is not like a physical bin. I just mean a place where you expect to find inventory or a place where you could put inventory. So in this specific example... Right, it could be a pallet or it could be a drawer. Or specifically, it could be a shelf is a bin. But Mm -hmm. on that shelf is another bin, which is the pallet, which in and of itself is also a bin. And then it has further bins like a box all the way down to the thing you actually care about. And also, I think to me, what's the real defining characteristic is the the right now we've not described any work no work's being done we've been doing all this work to talk about what things are mm-hmm. but when it comes down to like for example i want to put something in the bin the actions or functions in this case that you would want they are all tied to whatever object you're talking about so for example if the bin has the characteristic to hold or to receive mm-hmm. then that's where the logic for receiving an item or other bin should live you know the ob- like the thing you're trying to store you know the inventory item doesn't care about where it is it's not its job to know it's the bin's job to know what it has and that's kind of the way it tries to encourage thinking and and the only reason i say this is because that's typically what i've been Mm-hmm. A lot of the work I do is in that type of space using object oriented. Yeah. So it's not as simple as just thinking about what needs to be done. It's what's doing what first. And then you think about what is the thing doing, not what needs to happen. Right. right. And that I th- I'm sure you're going to lead into the next paradigm. That's uh, the opposite of that almost. Yes. Functional programming. <laughs> yes. Which tr- strives to like the, the, the ideal functional programming is one 
where that you're you're trying to reduce the number of side effects of the program to zero right which is that <clears throat> it everything happens internally you're splitting up the program into only the procedures right. that that you need to to make it up and this is sort of like what i was talking about earlier with c but doing it in such a way that you know it, like let, let's say we have a a function that tells me i don't know okay sorting is like maybe a good example sure sorting is a good example yeah so i have a list of things and i need to sort them i can when i when i do that it doesn't change the list that i gave it it makes a new list that has them sorted right um because changing the list would be a side effect and side effects can lead to nasty bugs that take a long time to emerge Mm -hmm. um and and things like that or so but so like another such side effect would be in our inventory program deducting something from inventory right that is a side effect you're trying to reduce the number of times that you do that to only the bare minimum necessary to actually do the job right um that kind of thing um and that this is sort of this is an old way of of designing programs but it's sort of come about because object-oriented programming has created some other weird issues mm -hmm. because turns out computers don't work like the real world no well and also even in the example i gave earlier people who say if i'm in a group of people who want to use an object-oriented language or we have to use it for some reason and we're doing a job like inventory it doesn't clearly define how you should do it though mm -hmm. and it doesn't even it's kind of agnostic almost how you do it like for example you could have it to where every item in inventory has a memory associated with it of where it is yeah. that relies on the existence of other things that it can't be constantly aware of. Like it needs to know that it's in a bin. So the the classic problem here would be I take, I take the inventory item. I'm just going to call it the item for now, sure. put it in bin. So instead of the example I gave earlier where the bin now has a list inside of it that says, okay, here are the things here are the I items have that bin. I have. Yeah. Instead, the, the item, item tells you what bin it's in. Yes. Yeah. Problem. What happens if I delete the bin or I get rid of the bin? Now you have this item that tells you, well, I'm in this bin. Okay, but that bin's not real, so... Right, so now it's orphaned off. But yeah. there, there might be... But it exists somewhere. Exactly. Unless you throw away everything in the bin. Right. And so, and that's an example of how well, in the real world you can't... Well, you can throw away a bin, but you can't throw away a bin without modifying its contents and also not throw away the contents. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but there might be a valid reason, an arguably good valid reason to do it that way. Sure. But... Maybe. I just gave a good anyway, reason why it's not. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's another thing. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing that I've heard about before is uh, distinct colors and languages. Hmm. Um, you know, so in, in English, we have a certain set of colors that we will talk about. Like you'll have your primary colors, your red, green, and blue. Um, and then secondary colors that are mixes of those mix red and blue. You get purple, mix red, uh and yellow and you get orange mix blue and yellow and you get green that kind of thing um in some languages blue and green have the same word mm. um because what is green if not just a slightly different blue okay if you you know and it's hard it's hard for a native english speaker to think that way because right. you were taught from a very early age to distinguish between blue and green 
mm-hmm. but to people who are raised speaking that language, you know, they, they may have like an adjective they can put on it to distinguish them. Obviously, they can still see the difference like in yeah. the same way that you can tell the difference between a dark blue and a light blue. Right. Uh, you know, navy blue ver- versus sky blue. Mm-hmm. But we, but they're both blue. And to them, if you show them a blue thing and a green thing, they're both blue or whatever the word is for that color. Right. They would think about the distinction between green and blue the same way we would think about the distinction between sky blue and navy blue in that yeah. case. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing that changes the way that you look at things because then, then it changes the... It, this is a thing we'll get into here in a little bit. Categories. Mm. Um, by look, By taking those colors and putting them in the same category this changes the just changes your model of things right uh okay and then another uh thing uh numbering systems Hmm. um most languages developed with a base 10 number system because we have 10 fingers and that's the most obvious way to count things Mm -hmm. um but not all languages do this um French has a particularly strange number system. <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to be able to explain the numbers. Yeah, you you might have a, a better idea. Of... Quite frankly, it's just inexplicable because it's wrong. <laughs> that's that's the only way I can think about it. Um, I know it has something to do with the number six is really important, I think. Um, it's either six or 12 or 20 or who knows. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, well, like for example, if you were to say the number 10, it's like, well, it's 12 minus two. It's like, okay. Like, oh, okay. Or two... Two sub twelve is the way I would you could say right. shortly. It's like, or you know, four add six or six add four. It's like, right. but but why do you do this? You know, I guess a lot of French people have twelve or six fingers. You know, I don't know. I guess it's uh, only it's only good reason. <laughs> aliens and visited France a long time um, ago. Yeah, there there are other uh, more obscure languages I know of that have uh, base six number systems, and there are some languages where. Uh, distinct numbers may not even be a thing that's important um it doesn't matter precisely how many things you're talking about like is there one two a group a huge group like maybe that's all you care about you know like the distinguishing between one and two is pretty important you're going to find that pretty much everywhere uh and maybe three or maybe four but beyond that it's like okay there were a few animals let's say like this is again where the culture sort of informs the language. Where right. like, what what do you actually care about? Like if you're if you're in a culture that has no concept of like accounting, mm-hmm. you don't need precise numbers. You know, but maybe maybe I just need to tell you, look, there was an army over there marching toward us. Like right. It's like army or like a squadron. Right. Like, <laughs> like th- those are the orders of magnitude we are caring about here. Do is it a threat or is it a skirmish? Like is it mm-hmm. a war? Yeah. And uh, another another one that I've heard of, and I'm not going to be able to think of the specific language, uh, but I associate this with Eastern cultures. Um, thinking uh, logarithmically instead of linearly about yeah. numbers, where like, what's the number halfway between one and nine? In a linear system, sorry, between zero and nine. In a linear system, we would say four and a half. Because four and a half is exactly half of nine. If you if you walk four and a half lengths, and then then you only need to walk that same length again, four and a half lengths to get to nine. Right. 
in a logarithmic thinking system, you would say three. Uh, okay, maybe it was it was between one and nine. Whatever. Anyway, you get the idea. Linear in a logarithmic system between one and nine. Okay, three is the halfway point because three is three times one and nine is three times three. So thinking about <laughs> thinking about the proportions there, it's halfway. It's like triple once and then triple again and you're there. Mm, okay. Dumb. Okay. <laughs> it just depends on... Well, and it's interesting though because a lot of the things in our experiences work logarithmically. That's like, true. Um, for, let, let's take, for instance, a sound. For a sound... Uh, to be twice as loud, you raise its intensity by three decibels. We have, uh, it, and so this will require twice as much energy to produce. But if you just, if you keep amplifying a sound linearly, it feels like it has diminishing returns. If you want to raise it by another three dB, you need to double the amount of energy again. And again and again and again, where we, we don't we, we perceive the intensity of sound logarithmically in that way. Right. Well, and there's also something to be said, and this is really subjective, but I feel like it's also kind of true intuitively. When you look at, for example, like the amount of effort it takes to accomplish something, it, if, say, for example, you and I are working on a project and we have eight weeks to do it. And ideally, we in a, in a good world, we would load all parts of the project every day should have the same amount of work. But it never works out that way. Uh, everything seems to take more effort at the end than it did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as though we are using, you know, we're assuming things on a linear scale. But realistically, we sh if we were to, if we would have thought about it logarithmically, we would have not had to stress as hard near the end. Mm -hmm. But it, it's kind of how things kind of come up. Like, it's not probably a perfect system, but things occur mid-work that cause more work that if you would have used a logarithmic scale, it's like the amount of work you need to do increases exponentially with the amount of work to be done. So if you think about it logarithmically, you can actually more adequately think about the time frame for when you would need to be able to do something. Right. Right. And that's, and that's an extremely intuitive thing. That's one of the hardest jobs out there is to, you know, look at something that needs to be done and say, well, how long is it going to take with this many people? I mean, there are people that their entire career is figuring that out. And mm -hmm. becoming very good at, at figuring that out and giving an honest, good estimate, you know. So, I don't know. That's just another example that's extremely intuitive where, like, we don't understand. we While we under intuitively understand decibels, we don't necessarily have the same technical understanding most people of decibels. They just know that bigger is more. And they don't know why on their stereo it goes from 0 to 20 or 40 sometimes. I, I think it's, I don't remember what it is, but it's. And, but there's the notches on that are not evenly spaced, mm -hmm. or if they are, the numbers jump in weird ways. You know, if you ever if you have an old style stereo that has an actual meter on it, mm -hmm. look at how the numbers are spaced going up. They're not evenly spaced, and the uh, tick marks are not either. You know, right? For that reason, I guess for for those of you who don't intuitively understand logarithms, like I know you have a bit more familiarity with them with your well, background. Yeah. I don't though, so it's interesting to think about that way sure so another thing that you wanted to talk about was technical definitions that's right um now more specifically i wanted to talk about the interaction between technical definitions and common parlance so um 
we spent a good amount of time today talking a little bit about some te technical definitions, specifically in programming languages and numbering systems. Mm -hmm. um, but what I thought was interesting is it's the interchangeability of the two. And we're going to get, after this, we're going to talk a little bit about consequences and we'll, we'll really kind of lean back on this more. But when you are in a discipline and you where it matters and you need to be able to speak very specifically about a certain thing, the language changes. But if you already have words that mean pretty much the same thing, uh, but you need it to, to be more specific, um, you can. So a, a good example is in physics, the word physics and mathematics, and maybe even statistics, you know, uh, or in, in a strict discipline, the words precise and accurate mean different things. Yeah. Um, and they even mean different things in common parlance, but they're used pretty much interchangeably. If someone says that person's very accurate or that person's very precise, what they're trying to communicate about a person is that they're probably very detail-oriented and that they can do what they're asked, you know, mm -hmm. repeatedly, or they, they can do it, you know, to a fine degree of detail. You know, I can't, it's hard to think about it not using the words, but it's like, oh, well. Or if I like, if someone says, oh yeah, what he said is accurate then what you mean is it was close to the truth. But, and if, if I said, okay, but well, what he says was, you know, precisely it, you know, it's the same thing. Right. If that was true. Like, but in the discipline, accuracy has to do with how close you are to the truth or how close you are to exact correctness. You know, like say for it, use the bullseye example. I think it's the one everyone sees. If yeah. you took physical science, accuracy means, how close you were to hitting the bullseye whereas precision has to do with how tightly grouped a set of your you know arrows uh, arrow, yeah your arrows would hit yeah. um so if you're looking at a bullseye that's accurate the bull the, the arrows might be in a cluster that's not right, super could, tight or you could make a ring around the bullseye right never actually hit the bullseye but it's very accurate because the center of all the shots was the bullseye right whereas the precision has to do with how big that ring is right um how tightly grouped so you can have something that's way off on the left side of the target but if the arrows keep splitting one another you're extremely precise but not accurate right so you can be both accurate and precise but you can also be very precise and not accurate mm -hmm. and interchange vice versa and those mean different things technically i guess you can speaking. think of it this way like if i want to express maybe uh, I, if, if I want to tell you like how much water is in a cup, then I can tell you like, okay, there's exactly uh, 127.5328 milliliters. Like I'm telling you a very precise number, but I could be very wrong. There might be 50 milliliters in that cup. Right. Exactly. Or, and you see this also come down to like instruments that measure things. Mm-hmm. People care a lot about both of the things, but they tend to, at least in my experience, they tend to care more about the precision of things. So if I have a caliper, which is a device that's kind of like a tape measure, but it clamps down on things or expands. Yeah, it's a measuring tool. It's a very precise measuring tool. Um, it's, yeah, you get them because you need the precise result that a ruler just can't give you. Exactly. It can tell you this thing is 30 mils apart, which yeah, is which about, is thousands of an inch. Yeah. 30 mils wide and you need that to be consistent now because and the reason being is if it's actually if the thing you're measuring is actually 35 but you keep measuring it over and over again and keep getting 30 if you're aware of the error 
that's imparted to the device, you can change it. You can calibrate it to fix accuracy. Mm -hmm. You can't calibrate necessarily to fix precision. So if I can repeat the same result and then just shift the what I'm getting to match reality, then it's good. But if every time I measure it, it's you know 30, then 32, then 28, then 25, and then 35, it's... That's this less... thing is all over the place. This thing is useless to me. Exactly. But if it's the same <laughs> thing every time, then I can just shift the outcome mm -hmm. to match reality and then I'm good. So that's what people... And you'll hear this uh, if you know anything about tools or you watch tool ads. You know, this is a very precise machine. They'll use that word because technically speaking, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, good example is no one says, oh, this is an accurate rifle necessarily, or this mm -hmm. is an accuracy rifle. No, they say this is a precision rifle. And what they mean is it will always shoot in the same area. And then you can use adjustments to move. Yeah, that. you just move the sights around to get it accurate. Exactly. Yeah. You can you can account for accuracy in ways that you can't account for precision once you, the user, have the device. Right. Yeah. So because your your rifle is useless to you, if you can move the sights, but it's all over the target. Right. Now now that's a pretty mon uh you know mundane example that doesn't have a lot of implications, mm -hmm. um, but there's some that are right. Um, and the one that. And these tend to be, and it's the words in social sciences that tend to be more problematic. And that's because they'll use real word terminology. Like science. Like science to um, make you think about something a certain way. Uh, but the technical definition, since it's subjective, can be loaded. And so you can almost use doublespeak mm -hmm. to get away with, you know, imparting an ideology into what you're wanting to communicate by picking a term uh like we'll just use the, the term that's got the most flack which is what does it mean to be like racist for mm -hmm. example well the yeah. common parlance definition is that you are using a you're making a determination based on race like that's what you're right. doing and that's what more specific yeah normally hating someone based on race yeah it comes that's, with that's the strong that, that's the baggage that comes with it yeah, or the uh, the connotation, I mean. Right. But technically speaking, and it also depends on who you ask. Sure. But in a lot of the d material that comes out of the discipline, uh, if you can call it that, is, uh, oh, well, it's prejudice plus power. Like, that's the sub Right. You're definition. not truly racist unless you have the power to act on it. Exactly. And so that's very different. That means that's a very different thing. It implies a power dynamic, whereas the common parlance definition right. doesn't and you end up you end up with things like uh like okay so in the united states it is it is said that white people have power over black people because they're the majority right um and in some sense that's true um but when you if you take a definition of racism like prejudice plus power of course that's simplified but anyway then you could say okay well white people have historically been racist toward black people in the united states um, but black people, because they do not have the power, cannot be racist toward white people, right. at least in the United States. And so it it frames this situation where it becomes like impossible to blame a black person for doing something that everyone could look at and see is wrong. But it's like, oh, but you use that word and that's not the right word. Right. And so what will happen is in the discussion say, well, it wasn't racist. It was prejudiced. And the, as if that changes something, but, but, but it does mm -hmm. because there isn't the same baggage tied to prejudice as there is with racist. Like if, if someone, if, if someone points yes. at another person, most says, people in the United States see racism as evil. 
exactly. So if I point at someone and say racist, that's going to have heads turning and that person's going to feel attacked and like you you are calling right, that person out. But then if out. someone comes in and is like, well, that's not actually racist. It's right. Like, well, yeah. but what I'm trying to get at is if I point at someone and say prejudiced, right. people aren't going to turn their heads as hard. They're not, it's not going right. to, it's not, it's not a positive thing. It's not even a neutral thing, but no. it's not going to have the same power. Exactly. And, and even words like, uh, another good example is discriminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that word, technically speaking, means just to differentiate or to choose. Right. That's all it means. Yeah, everyone discriminates all the time. Anytime you make a choice, you're discriminating because you could have done something else. Right. But because of you know it, its usage in common parlance, it tends to mean in a negative way. It has a baggage right. tied to, to it. To unfairly choose. Right. Yeah. So, and, and what I'm trying to get at there, and we'll get to it a little bit under consequences, is that if you can flip back and forth between technical speak and common parlance, you can use that in an argument where you can say the word. And unless your interlocutor is ready to catch that word and say, stop, define it right Mm -hmm. now. And the way you're using it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not what we normally are used to. Mm -hmm. And normally we all just take the common except. Well, yes. And then you can of course go into dishonest debate tactics and say, you know, Stop interrupting me. Why are you hung up on on this word? You're trying to distract from what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. So it's not not great. Yeah. Um. Anyway, let's talk about some of the, the consequences of these phenomena with languages. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that languages can, can do to your thinking is change the way that you categorize things. Um, so one example that I got from, uh, this was from some of the research that, uh, Worf from the, from the name of the hypothesis, uh, was doing where he had hypothesized that, or uh, hypothesized an explanation for some, uh, fires that were happening in chemical plants to the fact that workers there would use the word empty to describe barrels that had only explosive vapors in them. Because there's no solid or liquid matter in there, it's just it's it's empty. There's just vapor. Okay, but it's still explosive, <laughs> right? But but you use that word empty, and you're like, okay, well that must mean it's inert. Exactly. Um, and then another another thing, which is something that I've often complained about: gendered language, hmm. like gender that is baked into the language. You see this a lot in uh, in European languages like Spanish mm-hmm. and Italian, um, where like things that don't really have a gendered quality to them must be assigned a gender because there's not a way to refer to something without using a gender. Right. Um, or it also creates a space for things that did not necessarily have to have a gender given one changed how they developed um, or because of the reality. Right. And you know, assigning genders to things that don't really have gendered attributes makes you think about them in a certain way because if you if you think if you assign the female gender to something you associate it with other feminine things and this changes the way you think about the thing right um and don't be wrong i think there is sometimes a there is sometimes use for this uh especially like if you had like, like, for example, especially when you're referring to things that do have gender nature, it kind of makes sense. And we even do this in English. We just, mm-hmm. it doesn't always sound the same. So, for example, um, heifer and bull are terms that are used to describe a cow. Right. They're both cows. They're both cows. But 
well, bull's not specific to cow, but it can, it's generally used. But when I say if bull. If I just say a bull. Yeah, yeah you know I'm talking about a male cow. If I'm referring to a heifer, I'm referring to a female cow, specifically mm-hmm. one that hasn't had a offspring yet. Mm-hmm. I think that's the specific, it's very mm-hmm. specific, the term. It is extremely specific. Um, I'm not going to claim to know no. for sure. But. Um, well, and then there's also examples like steers, which are neutered mm-hmm. cows, neutered male cows. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, now we're walking off the reservation. Um, but like a goose and a gander are a male and a female goose, respectively, which is also interesting. But so there are some uses for it as to be that little bit more specific. But now you're verging on technical terminology where we could have come up with that for anything, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a weird consequence, especially when it's something like a stapler. Is it a male stapler or a female stapler? You know, it's like... <laughs> Why does it matter? Why does it matter? And to be fair to European languages, some incorporate neutral gender into things. Yes, they do. And what's but what's confusing is when there is a word for all three, and the neutral means the same as one of the other two, often in common parlance. But when you use one of the specific genders, it means something specific, but not when you use the other. It's interchangeable. Mm-hmm. It adds a lot of complicated overhead and ambiguity, which I don't like. Whereas a language like English is nice and, you know, totally gender neutral, so it doesn't matter. Right. Um, we just use adjectives to describe things if we really do mean, like, for example, with bathrooms. There is not a word for male bathroom and female bathroom. No, I, I don't we just it. say the men's room or, or whatever. Yeah, or, yeah, it's the female, it's the women's restroom or the men's restroom, stuff sure. like that, yeah. Um, I don't know if in Spanish it's baño or baña. I don't know if no, that matters. they're all baño. Uh, so they're all male bathrooms? Yes. Poor women. They just don't have... Well, because <laughs> baño being male doesn't mean the bathroom for men. It's, the bathroom itself is male for some reason. For some reason. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. But the kitchen's female. Ba- you know. Baño de mujer, the, the, the bathroom uh, of women. Like, oh, yeah. Weird. Okay. Yeah, I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Otherwise, I'm sure there are tons of interesting examples that don't make a whole lot of sense, mm-hmm. especially if you come from a gender-neutral language like English and you start... like That's one of the hardest things for English speakers to learn about, or non-gendered language speakers to learn about gender languages. Is Now I have to know all the genders for these things. But actually, what's even worse than that is if you're a native speaker of a gendered language like Spanish, and then you go learn a different gendered language from a different part of the continent, and the genders are different between them for the same thing, for the same gender-neutral thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a fun thing. Ugh. (laughs) Uh, Another interesting consequence of uh, how language affects the way you think about things is mental models of space so you sort of mentioned this earlier with uh korean where you're when you're speaking to somebody you're always talking in terms of their perspective yeah it's relative to the person to which you're speaking right assumed um there's also an obscure language i think somewhere in new guinea where everything is always described in terms of cardinal directions uh like geographic cardinal directions north south east and west um there is no concept of forward, back, left, and right. There's only north, south, east, and west. Um, and if you don't know where true north is, then you can like point in a direction and call that the starting point. So you can establish a direction if you don't actually have one. Um, but then like you're expected for the rest of the interaction to remember which way was north. 
To be fair, though, I kind of like that. <laughs> like, it, it's interesting, and it has shown that they have uh, very good uh, spatial awareness, like the, the the tribe that uses this language. Right. Um, well, and I'm just thinking, again, back in the video game space, one of the hardest things to do, like, there's a specific game I play, it's called Escape from Tarkov, where you don't have a HUD. Uh, heads, heads, up heads up display. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, which tells you north, south, east, west, and then gives you a... Uh, degree radial so from like oh it's mm-hmm. 65 which means zero is north go 65 degrees turn that's where you're looking right mm-hmm. so when you're in there with another person which i'm not physically next to i can't just point if i say things like oh he's on the left he's on the left i mean he's on my left but the other person which doesn't have the same ability to quickly ascertain me and what mm-hmm. i'm doing and it doesn't recognize me as a person as easily because it's a digitized uh-huh. fake person they would have to look at me and then infer which direction I'm looking at the moment I said it. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully I haven't turned since then. And that's, I've had more bad times in that game trying to just explain where someone is mm-hmm. than I've ever had. It's the most frustrating thing. So I feel like if I spoke that language, it would be awesome <laughs> because mm-hmm. I could just say, oh, uh, he's southwest of us right now. And then there was a compass that helped me know which direction I'm looking. And yeah, that I, I kind of want to learn that language now because that seems really fascinating to me for giving. It's not very applicable, I would think, in a person-to-person communication, but in like communi- in like uh, telecommunication, it would be super useful. Well, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't do that in English because we have words for cardinal directions. So you could just establish at the beginning of the of the game, this way is north, like if you don't have a true compass, this way is north, remember that, and we'll talk in those terms. Yeah, but it would also be nice if everyone was just so used to doing that that right. they had that level of spatial awareness right now. Because we do that, the people I play with. But it happens so often that someone goes, oh, I was looking north. And they're like, no, you were looking south. And they're like, oh, I forgot. Because it's hard to constantly remember over the course of an hour wait which way was north and then you're also in a space you don't recognize and you might be inside of a building where you can't just look at landmarks Mm -hmm. to help you figure that out and you've done a bunch of turns so you've lost track of which direction you're facing yeah it it would be nice to have people that had a language that helped encourage that level of spatial you have to be spatially aware because you can't give directions to people unless you know which way is north exactly Ugh. (laughs) Uh. anyway so that's another fun consequence um any other consequences of this that you want to talk about a mental modeling of space Uh, or just consequences of like language influencing your thoughts um yeah i I think this is i'm going to come back to the one that we talked about with technical definitions Mm -hmm. um and it is this is going to step back from just these things and question whether or not this is a potential consequence. I do think it's fair to say that there have been concerted efforts in the past for people to explicitly manipulate language, very similar to what we saw in Anthem in 1984, where, you know, entities with power or authority attempt to change the language to achieve some outcome. Yes. This is actually the original uh, or the, the origin of the term, uh, political correctness politically correct speech is like words that you're allowed to use right um which is funny because even the term political correctness would imply that this is the right thing to say mm-hmm. not 
the preferred by group thing to say right but then the the qualifier political means like something that is politically correct is not necessarily actually correct but it is the correct thing for you to say politically right well and of course then the definition of politically changes but the original thing was like legally like you must talk in a politically correct way right it's like it's a type of censorship Sure. Well, and, and even, like, I think my bone still, to pick with correct, it implies a black and white, there is a right and a wrong, mm-hmm. that once you draw a distinction between the two, you can then start assigning either punishments or encouragements mm-hmm. accordingly. Whereas if you would have used a thing like politically preferred speech, which both would satisfy alliteration and also be more accurate, it, it gives the option, right? That, that's the thing that I don't like about it, is that it forces a black-white dichotomy that once you've done that, you can then start assigning characteristics to each or worse. Um, Now I would say that most efforts that to, and anyone who's come up with a conlang or is interested in conlangs or constructed languages will have seen is that they don't, there's a reason most conlangs aren't commonly spoken. Right. Like look at Esperanto is a good example. It wasn't Esperanto is like the conlang. Right. Yeah. Um, there are many conlangs. I mean, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, guy who wrote uh, Lord of the Rings and such, uh, and The Hobbit, he wrote many conlangs. Yeah, there's lots of fictional conlangs. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, and you, you've got those languages. You've got uh, Klingon as well, as well known culturally uh, from Star Trek and, and others. Yeah. And others, yeah. Um, and while those are fun and entertaining, no one, I don't think, ever has con- seriously considered that becoming a like a good language for us to use regularly. That they're they're meant for entertainment purposes. Yes. Um. And normally they're they're used. This yeah, doing a, a fictional conlang like that is done for like world building. Yeah. You're trying to paint a setting by like just just the way these people speak tells you something about them. Exactly. Like, look at a good example is if you are familiar with Klingon or. Game of Thrones, Dothraki is another conlang. Mm-hmm. Both of those languages, even the names of those languages, tell you a little bit about the group that uses it. It's a, they're both very unpleasant to say. Like you have to, at least to English speakers, you form your mouth in ways that are weird. And in the words in the language are spoken, they both have emphasis built in. So if something is said harshly, that's just expected. But to someone who isn't who speaks a language that isn't doesn't have that part of inflection to it, it it comes across as a harsh, almost belligerence, mm-hmm. which is true. But both of those cultural groups are war. They're, they're like warring groups. That's what they do. War is a big part of their culture. And so just by naming it that and having them speak in a way that's very aggressive, it tells you a lot. And even in the real world, um, there's a meme about German that way. Like, it, like... Uh, someone speaking in German, it's yelled. It's very... Krankenwagen. Yeah, it's very harsh. It's like <laughs> a lot of, k- 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 you know, breaks. Even though if you go watch a video of anyone speaking German in the real world, it doesn't sound like that. No. But to all non-English, non-German speakers, uh, the best example I can think of is uh, Candide, which was written over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um it used as it used made up English words or French words, I think, at the time uh, when it was originally written, but they were obviously German sounding. Like the the place that Candide is from is called Thunder Ten Trunk. Like it's yeah. got a lot of the and sounds in it, and everyone's like, "Oh, German, probably." Like you think of that instead of, you know, 
like uh like a marseille or something like that which is very soft in french French. which is why they you know surrender and you know there's all the jokes (laughs) about french you know um but uh, what was he talking about oh um but if you look at real conlangs like esperanto that they were created to be used by everyone that's that was right yeah yeah it was yeah esperanto is like the conlang someone was like you know what speaking different languages is dumb we should all speak the same language i'm going to make a language that we can all speak esperanto yep and a bunch of people are like, that's a great idea let's implement it and then here we are no one speaks it hardly no and that's because we do not learn languages that way and teaching someone a conlang is hard because the the best teaching way to someone a language is hard it is but it's made a lot easier if you already speak it natively right. um there's something to be said for example about fluency in a language it's said that only people who learn a language up to a certain age can ever speak it fluently like really well yeah um like me being the age that i am just under 30 doxed but um (laughs) if i were to learn mandarin chinese i will never sound like someone who grew up speaking mandarin chinese no and no matter how much effort i put in it will always be faked and I would have to make a conscious effort that I'll eventually wear out and won't do correctly, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so when I look at that, I think, yeah, making substitutions to languages and trying to use language to make people think differently is fairly impractical. There's all you you can't mandate that change. People, we, we've tried. Um, look at English language reform, mm-hmm. uh, which there have been many attempts. To, you know, there are a lot of complaints about English as a language where things just don't make sense because yeah, it's English, a, the language of, we'll take that word. Yeah, we borrow... Not change its spelling and say it how mostly how it was originally said. Most, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and being influenced over centuries from very different groups of people, from, you know, the Norman Conquest, where mm-hmm. a lot of the French words come from, to Viking Conquest. Okay, a lot of conquests. Um, <laughs> Britain was a very important place to a lot of people who yeah. wanted to take it over. <laughs> Apparently, ask the Romans. Even that far back, people yeah. were trying to get a hold of it. Um, and then all the way back in perpetuity, there's the Druidic languages, which are just completely alien to the way English mm-hmm. is now. But some of those words made their way all the way to mm-hmm. the modern day. Um, yeah. So people have looked at that and go, okay, there's different grammatic rules almost that apply depending on what we're talking about. A great example is plurality. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there just isn't a plural form of a word. It's just a different word. Mouse. It's not mouse says it's mice. Mice. Reasons. Just because the language we borrowed that word from Mm -hmm. didn't use the ES, um, suffix to denote or yeah, or Plurals. this happens in verbs as well, uh, in between tenses. Speak, not speaked, spoke. Spoke. He ran? No, he runned? No. No, he, he ran. ran. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Run was running. And that and sometimes you have to use additional words to mm-hmm. modify participles and stuff. Like it it sucks. And everyone's favorite swim, swam, and swum. When do you use those? <laughs> You need to know them for the test. Anyway, you need to know them for the test. <laughs> Drink, drank, and drunk. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's a mess. Um, and so many people have set out with, you know, the, the arduous goal of we're going to make this consistent. And they all fail because uh, there was one notable one that sort of worked. Oh, yeah? Like halfway. Uh, yeah, Webster's reform, uh, which is why American English is so different from British English, at least in spelling. 
Mm. Um, he didn't try to change the language itself, but he did successfully change several spellings. Is this so, where like color color comes yes, from? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, color with the U in it is the original spelling. And Webster removed that because he's like, that's stupid. It doesn't belong there. But he also had a lot of suggestions that didn't catch on. Like uh, he wanted to change the spelling of soup to S-O-O-P and <laughs> women just... to W-I-M-M-E-N because that's how you say it. But yeah. no. But so some of them didn't catch on, but a lot of them did. Yeah. Um. But I would. when did he try to do this, though? Uh, good question. Because I would argue that if this was any time at... Or before a hundred years ago, it's easier to change written reform when a lot of people don't write. Um, or, in, yeah. But we all speak, you know. Um, and also, you have all the complicated issues of dialectic differences. Some things just will not translate even in the same language to different dialects. Um, it's hard. But I think the biggest thing that I can, I'm concerned about is the technical is the conflation of technical the intentional conflation of tech, technical and common parlance vocabulary and definitions people that's the place where you do see it a lot is definition changes um especially when there is a disparity between i won't say education levels but classifications of education um so i'm college educated right um i never graduated college but i i attended university for five years yeah that tells you a lot about me i think (laughs) um but i was in that environment for long enough that i certain words will never mean what they used to mean to me right um i'll always wince at certain words that are totally fine the way people use them but because I was trained for years to hate that word and to not use that word or to impart a meaning onto that word that it didn't have. Mm-hmm. I'll wince when I hear it. Um, and it's weird to juxtapose that when I go home to my family, who of which only one other person is college educated, um, especially amongst the older members of my family, where they are totally unaware. And they also use words that are very different because they're practical words that mean very specific things mm-hmm. to only hillbillies i guess um to be honest um or rednecks if you will but there's it, a difference there is a difference actually hillbillies are in the hills anyway yeah and in the hills there are trees so there's no sun to burn your neck but anyway um uh <laughs> but yeah um i i would say that i i dislike it and when i hear someone doing it or I'm at the point now where when I hear someone use a certain word, I immediately become suspicious. There are certain words. I immediately become suspicious of what meaning they're trying to impart mm-hmm. and I know in what game they're trying to play. And it's dangerous because when you have enough, it opens up possibilities f- for, I hate, I don't like this phrase either, but dog whistling, like actual mm. dog whistling, which is where people who have been cut educated in the same way can communicate and totally glide over people who haven't been let in on what we're changing things to and speak and communicate what we should do and get them to agree. And also for the person who doesn't understand what they're actually saying to also tacitly agree. Mm -hmm. Like for example, we gave earlier, if you change the definition from of racist to 
prejudice plus power instead of just being negatively prejudiced based on race, which is how most people understand it. You can come out and say, we as people should, st- you know, stamp out racism. And most people will nod along and say, yep, I agree. Yeah. Racism bad. You know, we all agree. But then when they turn around and say, okay, well, we're going to start doing things like affirmative action. Um, or we're going to disenfranchise certain people to bring the power levels to equal. Because one of the ways on the new definition of prejudice plus power is if everyone has the same power, then no one can be racist, right? Right. But most people don't think of it that way. So they look and see the policies being implemented and they go, hey, wait a minute, that looks kind of racist. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they're told, no, No, it's that's not, not racist because, yeah. It, it causes a problem. But by then... People are already doing things. You voted them in. You let them do the thing. And not only that, but it allows you to weaponize words to essentially, you know, cordon off topics you don't want touched because of the feared association. You know, and that's another thing, too. Like, we did a series a long time ago on taboos, which I still think is incredibly valuable. And one of my favorite things that we ever did um, that, you know, when you attach inherent meaning to words that are tabooed like that you can just cease discussion on topics that are very very valuable. And even in ways you wouldn't think, like bathroom taboos. People don't like talking about their business. And I even said that there because that's how most people would phrase that. Mm -hmm. They don't even like to talk about the facility by which we excrete waste. (laughs) You know? You might be uncomfortable hearing this because we don't like it. It's a part of reality that we don't like, so we put a separate room in our house that we put a door on with a fan in to yes, keep to try it to get away. rid of the smell as quickly as possible. To keep it away, <laughs> and for the longest time, that part of the house was outside the house. It was right. over there, the outhouse. In fact, in fact, yes, very specifically named. Um, we're so there's such a stigma about talking about it that there's a vast majority of the world that still uses toilet paper instead of bidets, for example. And there's a stigma about a bidet that's like, if you don't know, that's like a, it's like a faucet for your, your backside that washes yes. you off. Arguably does a better job, it but does it's uncomfortable do a better job. for a lot of people in the West to use them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And so it's one of those things where it's, if, if there wasn't the stigma attached, it may not be an issue. We could address a problem like, Oh, well we, you know, let's talk about the type of hygiene. And we just could. Here's yeah. Don't. Here's a device we could use to be cleaner, but right. it's icky. So but icky because it <laughs> concerns an icky thing. Yeah. Um. So those are the two main things that I don't like. Um. One is a consequence that may or may not be usable by people with malicious goals or even maybe non-malicious goals. I still think it's wrong though to. It's deceptive. That's just at its core. That's what it is. It's deceptive, and I refuse to believe that anyone is so anyone who has the training and been in areas to learn this type of definite you know learn this type of language you are not stupid enough to think that people don't know you didn't know before you were taught it so why would you assume that everyone else magically learned it when you did you have object permanence you should understand (laughs) that not everything is entitled to the same knowledge that you are, but then to go on and to use it in common parlance as though it means the same thing, knowing the definition is different is just outright deceitful and wrong. And we should punish that behavior. We should call it out when we see it. We should refuse to accept definitions into common parlance 
just for the sake of discussion like that. If we want to have a scholarly debate about it, have a scholarly debate. But that changes the framing of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so when I see that happen, you know, I call it, I hate it because it's pulling the wool over people's eyes. And you're try and if your message and what you hope to achieve is one that you can only achieve through some type of subterfuge like that, it's it's I'm skeptical at best. And at worst, it's malicious. So th that's all I would have to say about that part of speech is in language. You know, we, we I think we've lived as human beings for a long time in the safety of common parlance where we, it, there was a common understanding about, and was, I don't like using this, but there was like almost a social contract about how we speak and we use language where it, the burden is on you to speak in a way that, a, that communicates effectively to those you're listening to. But I feel like now that's kind of changing to where the burden is on the listener to be educated enough to understand what you want to say, which I mean, there's something to be said about that. There are definitely arenas for that. Like if you're in a scholarly debate or you're writing like a scholarly article or a journal article, yeah, use technical speech. And if someone wants to read that article, they need to know, hey, you've walked into our arena. You need to learn the definitions. That's fine. But in just conversation, where the whole point is just for you and me to exchange ideas, we we should not speak that way unless otherwise specified. Um and that's my thought on it. Sure. Um, in a nutshell. So I could go on at great length and mm -hmm. complain and say the same thing in different ways about, you know, for about 20 minutes. But that's that's how I feel about it. So, And I would encourage people to do the same. If you see it happening, stop the conversation. You can't have a good conversation with a bad faith interlocutor. You need to fix that first. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's all I have to say about it. Sure. And it's a shame because there's so many fascinating, interesting, fun things about differences in language and stuff like that to talk about. Uh, and I hate to end on the bad note of <laughs> people will take advantage of this, but it's true. Um, so yeah, you know, and do that yourself. You know, speak in ways that people understand. And then if you need to use a technical definition, give it. So yeah, that's all I have to say. And we are over time pretty yes. dramatically. So thanks, David, for the long topic this week. You're welcome. I appreciate it. <laughs> and then hopefully next time we can talk a little bit about not language, but narratives. Yes, that that's we... going to be fun. Be a lot of fun. Okay. Until next time, philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.